With all your truth or kindness, Lord. With all your truth or kindness, Lord. Welcome to the Notice, where together we notice the mercy of God. I'm Susan Hookstra, your host. The Notice podcast explores our need to be noticed through biblical musings and conversations with special guests, experience relevant topics, and encouragement as we take notice of how the God of mercy satisfies. On this episode of The Notice, have you been frustrated with the various roles our culture places on women? Do you often feel like you're in a battle just to find your place? Join me for this episode with Rachel Jenneman, author of the book, The Real War on Woman, Overcoming Cultural Lies to Freely Live Out Your God-Given Purpose. We discuss this underlying battle and the victory we have when we notice what God calls us to do and begin to live out our purpose. Rachel Jenneman is the wife of David and mom to Paige, Caleb, and Jace. Both she and David are known as first-generational Christians. They gave their hearts to Jesus as teenagers at the same church where they met and never looked back. She is former staff pastor turned radio broadcaster at WLJN in northern Michigan and host of the podcast Unique on Purpose. When not hanging out with her family or radio audience, Rachel speaks at various churches, conferences, and camps. And she is now the author of The Real War on Woman, Overcoming Culture's Lies to Freely Live Out Your God-Given Purpose. So, Rachel, you've been on my podcast before, but I got you back again. thank you for having me back. I'm really Uh, excited. I'm excited. I'm excited because you (laughs) you finished your book. I did it. It's done. It is finished. Praise (laughs) God. I'm so excited about this book, and I I hope our audience is going to just take a listen and really listen in today because we're talking about something that's kind of serious. Yeah, I mean, it's very relevant today, for sure. And there is a war out there. There's a spiritual war out there. There's a spiritual war, and and it's, it's kind of on us women, isn't it? Uh, not that there's not other wars going on. Yeah, there's, there's, so, there's. I do believe that there is also a war on men. There's definitely a war on our men and boys. Maybe I'll write a book on that someday. I don't know. But there's also a war on women, and in our culture, we often hear that phrase: this war on women, and it's often geared towards abortion or not getting equal pay, or I don't know something. Right. I, I can't. Sometimes I just can't figure out what it is, and I, I don't disagree. That there's a war on women. I just don't think it's the war on women that the world says we're in. I believe it is the war that Satan has placed against us because he hates us. Yes. He hates us as yes, women. Yes, he does. And I mean, don't get me wrong. He hates men too. He hates anybody that's a follower of Christ. He's He hates anything that is a creation of God. But there is a war on us as women. It's it's a war against our identities, our marriages, our families, our sexuality, and everything that God has created us as women to be. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy stuff. And, you know, one of the questions you ask yourself in the book that was very interesting is you said, why did God make me female? So why don't you tell me a little bit about your own struggle with this <laughs> war? Well, I think I've always struggled with that just because 
I've always liked guy things and I always had a misperception of what it was to be a woman. I always had a misperception of what the world and even the church thinks about women and where they should be. And it took me a long time to finally get comfortable, get in that place of, no, this is a good thing for me to be female. I mean, I even struggled when I was pregnant with my first child and found mm. out she was a girl. I mean, I cried for two days. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's the best, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And I'm so glad she's a girl. God gave me exactly what I needed. But I remember sitting at my kitchen table crying out to God, like why she was a girl. And I said, and don't ask me why I said this, because I can't even think of it. But I said, what if she turns out just like me? And wow. I heard the Holy Spirit say, and would that be so bad? <laughs> you know, God always seems to like convict me with questions. <laughs> and that was kind of a turning point in my life, realizing that being female is not bad, but I saw it as bad. And it was just because of a lot of the lies that I had believed from the enemy. There's a lot of lies out there. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with three older brothers. Yeah. So I don't know. There's yeah. a lot, and I had, yeah, <laughs> a lot I had of crazy brothers going too. on there, yeah. too. And, you know, in your book, you kind of talk about these different stories. But you know, have you heard of that book, Captivating? Oh, yeah. I actually, in one of the chapters, I quote the book, Captivating. I talk a little bit about it because that was a turning point for me of being okay with, I guess I wouldn't say a turning point, but it was one of those aha moments of, oh, it is okay to be female. It is okay to feel the way I feel because I was really struggling with uh, the season of life that I was in. And when I read that book, it was like, oh, that's why I'm in this season and the way I'm feeling is okay. So yes, I do talk about that book in here. And and that book for me got me more aware of this war on women too mm -hmm. and this concept that we're warriors yeah and that that's part of what we bring to the world mm -hmm. because we're always oh, we're all kind of always taught to bring beauty and pretty you know we're supposed to bring pretty to the world which we do yes okay we also have this warrior spirit and I love how she discusses women as warriors and then you know I recently learned that during the civil war Women even dressed up as men mm -hmm. so they could fight alongside their husbands, fathers, and sons. But then you've had a real defining moment. Tell us about this day in 2016 that after the presidential election, you were really reminded of this war on women. So, okay, this is kind of the revelation. I was, I, I've always wanted to write a book. Did not think that this would be it. I always had a bunch of ideas that I wrote down. But in 2016, the presidential election took place. And then all of a sudden, we saw a bunch of women just hitting the streets in droves. They were in D.C. They were down in southern Michigan and Chicago. They, I mean, they were all over the place. These women were wearing these funny pink hats and they were protesting about this, quote, war on women. And I could not figure out what this war on women was. And they were saying how they were unequal and they were they were wanting equality. And, and I was really confused because these, and some of them I knew, some of them were family members or just friends that I had that were doctors. I mean, women who had very prestigious careers that had amazing degrees and were walking around uh, with these protest signs with their iPhones and Starbucks cups. And I'm going, how are you oppressed? I don't get it. I was, and it just, it really made me angry. Mm. And I wanted to like reach through my computer screen and just shake them going, what is wrong with you? Mm. And I felt that way because I have been all over the world. 
uh, I've doing a lot of missions and whether it's Africa, Southeast Asia, and I've seen what real oppression is for women, women who can't get educated because they're women. Uh, places where I remember being in the Philippines and we did a night feeding in the middle of this big city. And as we're feeding these children who had all come, they had gathered together to to see these white Americans, right? And we're giving them food. And I see these two little girls. They're probably about nine years old, so the same age as my youngest son. And they had uh, these fancy dresses on, makeup, and they were sharing a pair of high heel shoes. And what they were is they were little girl prostitutes. Wow. And we were feeding them the one meal that week that they probably did not have to sell themselves for. And that image is ingrained in my mind. And I thought, that's real oppression. And then I realized, you know, I, I well, I just didn't realize I began to uh, have empathy for the women that were marching. I began to feel sad. And it was because these women were fighting for something. Some of them had been hurt. Maybe some of them were just on the bandwagon because they're looking for some place to fight because God's all called us to a place of justice, you know, because he's a God of justice. And so it's kind of ingrained in us. And I'm sure that there were women there that were just wanting to be a part of something bigger than themselves. But then there were others that really were hurt at the hands of a man who was supposed to be a dad or an uncle or a coworker right. or a brother or whatever. And here they were marching, looking for something. I don't know what to bring them healing, whether it was the government or men or what, looking for some sort of healing. And they don't realize that their true healing comes from Jesus Christ. That's where healing comes. That's where being who you were created to be fully will come from, and they will never know that healing until they actually seek out Jesus. That's right. That's right. And, you know, so we're not only talking about a real war, we're talking about a real uh, savior. Yeah. <laughs> a real savior. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And we could end the podcast right there. <laughs> we? oh, well, and, and as I'm going through this, around the same time, my son developed this love for World War II. And not necessarily the the World War II, but their airplanes. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, buddy, if you want to learn about the airplanes, you should learn about the whole war. And we just went to the library and we just gathered a ton of books cool. on World War II. And him and I are going through these books together. And I just happened to grab some books on the women that served during World War II. Not even thinking about it, just grabbed them. So I am reading through this these books going, wow these people were incredible and they got on board with the war because they knew that the sooner they got on board, the sooner they served their country, the sooner their dads came home, the sooner their husbands, their brothers, their, their, their sons came home. And it wasn't a question of what their gender was. It was, we're in a war and we need to get, we need to get, get to getting. And then in 2017, I was asked to bring the Mother's Day sermon. Normally, our pastor's wife would preach on Mother's Day, but she was going to be gone, so I was asked to speak. And that whole feminist march thing was really burning 
in me and I couldn't explain it. So I went to my senior pastor and I said, listen, I don't know how you feel about this, but I really want to address the radical feminism in our culture on Mother's Day of all Mm. times. Is that okay? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) You princess warrior, you. (laughs) So I took the analogy of being in a spiritual war and how these women in World War II were also in a war. And they didn't fight for their place in the war. They just got on board and they just did it. They didn't pull the gender card. They didn't pull the race card. They didn't complain because they were female. They just did it. And that's how we, as women in the 21st century, need to be, no matter where God's called us. So in the book, you have these stories of some of these women, Yes, yes. Yeah, can you tell us about one of them? Okay, sure, yeah. So every chapter starts out with a woman from World War II. Then I compare her to a woman from the Bible, and I take those stories and then say, okay, how do we apply this to our lives today in this spiritual war? So the f- very first story I share about Ru- Ruby Loftus. Now, back in the 1940s, a lot of women's aspirations were to get married and start a family. Totally fine. But Ruby finds herself in the middle of this war in Wales, and she really doesn't have a choice but to get on board. Her father has passed away. Her brother has been drafted into the war. And now it's her, her mom, and her sisters, and they've got to make a living somehow. And her and her sisters, they go and they get hired in at this weapons company, this weapons machinery company. And they were like the best in the company. And they they met were met with some prejudice because the older engineers are like, really, you're bringing these women in here to do a man's job? But they proved that they could do it. And Ruby's job was to make this ring. And it was a, it had to be made perfectly. And it was smaller than uh, the thickness of your hair. And the ring needed to be placed in a Bofor gun, which was the gun that was on the ground that shot down enemy planes. And if she did not make that ring correct, then the Bofor gun could blow up in the face of the soldier. Oh, So she had to be on it. Mm -hmm. And again, she became one of the best in the company. And I look at her story and I'm going, well, was she any less important than the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy? Was she any less important than the men who fought when uh, the Japanese were attacking Pearl Harbor? No, she was just as important. Mm -hmm. And then I relay her to the story of J.L., in the Bible. Mm-hmm. A lot of times JL, I mean, she was total like this woman had moxie, right? I mean, this general comes into her tent knowing he's the enemy and when he falls asleep, she kills him with a tent peg. <laughs> and you know, but she, I'm I'm sure both of these women, I'm sure had no plans for an exciting life, but they were kind of thrown into it. Right. And they did it because they had to. And they just stood up. And they just stood up and they did just it. Stood up, and not did pulling it. the gender card, not pulling any card, not trying to prove themselves. They didn't have to uh, say anything to prove themselves. They just did it. So in our society, we're we're constantly trying to find what our role is and our purpose and in mm-hmm. all this. And and what I hear you saying is that sometimes it's just presented to you. That yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Sometimes it's presented to you, right? And sometimes you just have to rise to the occasion. That's mm-hmm. part of being in a you know in war times. You do wartime things, right? right? So, 
how is that different for us as Christians then? I love the statement from your book. You said, we need to stop fighting about where a woman's place is and start fighting where God's placed us. Yeah. Tell us about that. I said that because I'm really tired of hearing of just, just that. I'm really tired about hearing where a woman's place is. And it's not just the church, because you hear that from the church, but it's also the world too. And depending on your location in the United States, because that's where I found, depending on maybe where your area stands politically or just their thoughts of women, you're going to have a different upbringing. But being from northern Michigan, I had this idea of, well, the only way you're a real woman is if you forego marriage and family and you have this amazing career and take on the world. And honestly, that's what I want. That's what Mm -hmm. I wanted. I wanted to forego marriage and family and take on the world. But then I became a Christian as a teenager and I'm fed all of this. There's nothing more important than being a mom. There's nothing more important than being Mm -hmm. mom. It's the pinnacle of everything. It's Mm -hmm. the peak of life. And then I became a mom and I'm going, I hate this. I mean, I, I had a lot of resentment towards my own children And it's because I was told this is the peak, this is it, and I'm not feeling it. And everyone's saying, well, you know, God sees you even when you're cleaning up those Cheerios and even when you're changing diapers, like God Mm -hmm, sees you. mm -hmm. And, and, And I'm going, but I hate this. Is this my life now? And I remember being in the nursery with my daughter and I was... You know, sometimes in church, you don't go to church. You end up stuck in the nursery with your child because they're crying. And I'm sitting next to these two moms and they're talking about their dream laundry room. And they didn't see me because I turned my head and maybe it was just the post-pregnancy hormones. But I began to cry and I said, Lord, is this my life now? Dream laundry rooms? Mm -hmm. Like I wanted to take over the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I still can take over the world. Like not every woman wants to. A lot of women, they want to be the stay-at-home mom and homeschool and do all the things, and that is so awesome. Well, that's what God has put in them. And there's a part of me that wants to conquer the world, and that's okay. It just didn't come the way I expected it to. Mm -hmm. And I also, I realized that just because I was a wife and a mom first before having a career, before trying to take over the world and and conquer it, um, that didn't make me less of a woman, like the world said. Right. You know, the world looked at me as useless because I was this young wife and mom. Mm -hmm. And does that make sense? Like all of these mixed messages. Well, there's mixed messages we get and, and what role we're supposed to be. And then one of the things I discovered, because I, I was the same as you, I didn't, I wanted to be a professional clarinetist and I, I was really fo- hyper-focused on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't one of those kids who said, I can't wait to get married and have kids. Right. I didn't even, when I got married, I didn't even, oh, I have to pick out a dress, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was, it wasn't that for me either. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that I was going to change the world with my clarinet playing or something. I Mm -hmm. don't know. But then, and then I realized like when I was raising my children, I realized, wow, this is really important work. Mm -hmm. You know, molding a life and the responsibility of it. And Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, you know? And then I had to figure out how to balance that. And I realized that there are seasons in our life. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is when we're struggling with these roles that we play as women is that 
it's okay that for now I'm serving this yes. role or I'm later I'm going to serve this role or this or this or that in different seasons of our life. But that's not how the world pitches it. I mean, if no, you become a you wife and a mom, all. then your life is wasted for the rest of your life, yeah. you know? Or you either do one or the other. Or you do one or the other. And it, or, and, okay, so we live in this society that worships youth, and I don't talk really about mm-hmm. this in the book, but it worships yes. youth. And so by the time I'm in my late 20s and I had gotten married, I've already had two kids. And I feel, though, as my life is waste. I loved my kids. Don't get me wrong. I loved my kids. They are awesome. And especially now that they're older, like I so appreciate being a mom way more than I did, you mm-hmm. know, 10 years ago. Yeah, you're but, in the library with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. World like I, I'm, 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 cool. I'm in it. Like I'm right. in it because I want them to be full functioning adults and and believers in Jesus, and and I'm in it. But we have this society that worships youth, and you have to accomplish everything before the time you're 25. So by the time I'm 27, I went through, and I, I do talk about this portion in the book. I went through a quarter life crisis, mm. which. Everybody's heard of the midlife crisis. You get to middle aged and the guy buys the red Ferrari and dumps his wife for the younger, um, prettier model, you know. But what people were finding with millennials was that they were hitting a quarter life crisis. And it was because they had been fed for so long. You have to accomplish great things before you're 25. You, I mean, mm-hmm. look at all of the TV mm-hmm. and movies. All the professionals are in their young 20s and and they're having the time of their lives. They're not getting married until they're 30. They're not having kids until their late 30s, early 40s. And that was fed of this is what I'm supposed to do. So at 27, I'm thinking my life is over. What good am I to the world because now I'm too old? And mm-hmm. those that are older... Would laugh. Would laugh. Yeah. And now that that. I'm 40, I can look back at that and laugh. But at the same time, that was real because of all the lies that we were fed Mm -hmm. of having to accomplish all of these great things. So are you, are you, are you kind of like focusing in on that this real war is in all these different characterizations of what we should be? Yes, because... Like I said, we need to stop arguing about where a woman's place is and just start, you know, with, let's fight where God's placed us. We're all, you you said this, we're all in different seasons, which is great. Mm-hmm. And again, because I had this lie of I have to do everything by a certain age and everybody says life goes so fast, I'm realizing it It really doesn't. There is a lot to life mm-hmm. and your kids are not in your house for very long and I'm going, okay, I'm 40 years old now. That was a long time. I don't feel like it just flashed before my eyes. And I have a whole, God willing, I have a whole bunch of years left to make a ton of accomplishments and to do what Mm -hmm. God's called me to do. And there are different seasons where, man, the beginning part of your life, God may call you to be a Deborah and to be this warrior and you're out on the battlefield Mm -hmm. cutting it up. But then in the next season, he may call you to be a Hannah where you're praying that God is going to bless you with the son that you've always wanted, or it might be vice versa. He may call you to be an Abigail in the first season and then an Esther in another, or and then going back to an Abigail. Who knows? But it took me a long time to get to that place of, oh, these are just seasons. And if I would have realized that at 20, mm-hmm. 27, mm-hmm. 
I would have embraced those seasons. I would have embraced those seasons differently where now I'm 40 going, I'm in trying to embrace everything I have because I know this won't last forever. And once again, it's a season. My, uh, my daughter's going to be out of the house in a couple years. My other kids will be gone Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to absorb every minute. And that reminds me of someone who told me when I was pregnant, because everyone talks about their favorite age of whatever your children Mm -hmm. is. And, and, uh, this person told me, my favorite age is whatever age they are. Mm-hmm. And I I really took that to heart when mm-hmm. I raised my kids because I even would tuck them in at night and say, you're my favorite four-year-old. Yeah. Of course, um, you know, their sister was six, so mm-hmm. they were my favorite six-year-old, you know, yeah. so I, I covered my bases there. That idea of this concept in time. But it's also what's right in front of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the children are right in front of us, our husband's right in front of us, the people we work with are right in front of us, that's part of our purpose. That's part of yeah. where we're supposed to be fighting. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me just a little bit more about that and how you talk about that in the book? Yeah, well, going back to JL, JL is met with a general, and so this is in the book of Judges, if nobody knows who Deborah and JL are, you know, God puts these two women who are completely different together in the same book, in the same chapter, and there is a war going on really around JL's tent, and as General Sisera, the enemy, he has left his his military, I mean, they're getting beat, they're getting beat by the Israelites. General Sisera runs away, and he finds himself at JL's tent. Well, JL's husband has some ties with Sisera's family. So he's thinking, okay, this is an ally. And here he comes. He's in her tent. He asks for water. Well, she doesn't have water on hand. She has milk. Or maybe she had foreknowledge that milk would do something different. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It just says she gives him milk. Well, what does milk do? Milk coats your stomach. It makes you feel full. And now he's exhausted. He's had this milk. He falls asleep. She knows he's the enemy. So what do you do? She's a tent maker. What does she have? She has a tent peg. Who'd have thought? to kill the enemy with a tent peg, but she used what was in her hand. Mm. And I think we over-spiritualize what we can do for God Mm. because we're looking for other things when God has put stuff right in front of us. And I know that there's a, all of us want meaning in our life. You know, you talk about being noticed. All of us, it's ingrained in us as human beings to want to fulfill a purpose. Right. God's put that in all of us. And we feel as though there are certain things we have to grab onto fo- to fulfill that purpose when God has already placed that in front. So for a long time, when I first became a broadcaster, I remember telling you this, and the look on your face was priceless. I had said to you that as a broadcaster, I'm going, what am I doing for Jesus? And I remember you just gave me this look like, are you for real? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> And I thought it was hilarious, but it's because... I'm sitting in this padded room talking to myself in a microphone and I'm going, what am I doing for Jesus right now? And the Holy Spirit had to remind me and say, I gave you the microphone. Mm-hmm. That's what is in front of you right there now. You I mean, I know people, they there may see me as somebody like on the radio. Oh, she's glamorous because she's on the radio. But I see what's behind the scenes and it's not very glamorous mm-hmm. to me. Again, mm-hmm. I'm in a padded room talking to myself. Right. <laughs> like It's not very glamorous. But again, God said, I gave you a microphone. So what are you going to do 
through that microphone to impact the world. What are you going to do mm-hmm. when people get in their cars and their their maybe their their husband just left them or their son just died or they got a cancer diagnosis? What are you going to say to that person when they get into their car mm-hmm. and they just need a shred of hope? Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, I can't over spiritualize this. This is what God has given me. So Lord, how do I use it? And that's, that's kind of good. where I go into that's that. Good. That's good. And you know, one of the chapters is entitled The Weapon of Victory because you know, hey, it's a war. Somebody wins, right? Yeah. So tell us, what does this mean? So I talk about I open up with a pilot named Willa Brown. And not only did Willa get a lot of flack as a pilot because she was a woman back in the 1940s, which women pilots are an anomaly now. Like, it's not that big of a deal. But back then, that was a mm-hmm. huge deal. Mm-hmm. Well, not only was she a woman, she was black. Oh. So okay. not so you have, you have the sexism for being a pilot, but then you also have the racism because there are people that don't believe anybody of, at, back in the 40s, don't believe that anybody of color should be flying airplanes. But you have this woman... She's not pulling the gender card. She's not pulling the race card. She just kind of looked at life and said, I'll just show you. And she Mm -hmm. did it. She was the first black woman in the United States to receive her pilot's license. All right. She pitched to different political leaders to allow black men to fight during World War II as pilots. Actually, she's probably the reason. I mean, I'm maybe I'm overreaching here, but from what I've read of Willa Brown, she is probably the reason why black men were able to be pilots during World War II because she fought for them. Right. She even trained some of them. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that wasn't just a victory for her, but because she was a woman and black, it was a double victory. And we ha- are living in a society that loves victimhood. They love to be Mm -hmm. victims. Mm -hmm. You see it all over the place. Mm -hmm. They play the role of martyr. God cannot use us if we constantly stay in that place of victimhood. He's called us to be victorious. That's That's when he can use us. He wants us to come to him broken. Don't get me wrong. He, He wants us where we're at. He wants us to come to him broken. He wants us to come to him with all the nastiness and disease that's in ourselves, but then he wants to bring healing. And as he's bringing that healing, we can then bring others aboard and say, hey, you can experience victory Mm -hmm. too. All right. That's a great story. You know, I love Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So this is what we're talking about, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How are we going to stand up? We're talking about all different kinds of weapons Mm -hmm. and to embrace who we are as women, Mm -hmm. embrace whatever roles we're in, embrace what's in front of us and take some risks, right? So how can, how can we fulfill this verse? Any thoughts on that? There's a lot. I, I have the whole last portion of the book really is about our, some of our weapons. Now, granted, there's going to be a lot more weapons, but I put some of the big ones in here. First of all, the victory, but then also there is a huge need for love and not the definition of love that the world is giving. The world has their own definition of love, but the Bible's very clear that love is patient and it is kind and it is not rude and it rejoices in truth. People don't like that portion of the verse. They Mm -hmm. like that to be kind. They Mm -hmm. like don't be rude. They like Mm -hmm. patient, 
but rejoice in truth. Mm. You sometimes your defin the world's definition of love is encompassed in lies, mm. and we need to be people of of love and that are willing to express truth. There's also that weapon of forgiveness. Because when you are living a life with an unforgiving heart, you cannot bring others into victory with you. And not only are you going to really ruin relationships because of unforgiveness, you're going to ruin yourself. And then I also have the weapon of social justice, which is a huge term in in society today. Uh, that social justice warrior. I know, and you talk about and it. And I do. <laughs> and I say, you know what? Yeah. God is a God of justice. Yes, he's a God of mercy, but he is also a God of justice. And I think we talk a lot more about the God of mercy and grace than we do necessarily about the God Mm -hmm. of justice. And there's a desire in all of us to want justice because God is that God of justice. But how can we do it biblically? Mm -hmm. And I talk about Esther and the situation that she went through. People, I, I had a miss, I had a skewed view of Esther because I don't know why I thought this. But I thought she kind of signed up to be in this competition, this beauty pageant with all these other women to see who was going to be queen. And again, I don't know why I thought that. I just did. But then when you read through it, you read that Esther was taken. She was taken from her home. She was really round up. She was round up with all the other virgins around the town and brought. There was no choice in this. And If this was the 21st century, I mean, King Xerxes, everybody would be hashtagging me too, and he'd be sitting in prison with Harvey Weinstein. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So this was, it it almost reminded me of those women that get human trafficked. Mm. You know, they're coerced Mm. into becoming prostitutes, and that's kind of how I saw Esther. And so not only is her life this injustice, But somehow God works it out where she becomes queen and then she finds out all of her people are going to be slaughtered. And I go into there the steps that she took to make sure that that injustice was fought the right way. It wasn't screaming. It wasn't yelling. It wasn't a bunch of hashtags. It wasn't protest signs. And I'm not against hashtags or protest signs, but that's not going to change a dang thing. You need to get in the game. Right. And Esther got in the game. She knew who her audience mm-hmm. was. She knew what to do. Mm-hmm. That's a great message because I think oftentimes we, we sit back and we don't, we don't fight. Yeah. We don't fight for what's right. We don't fight for justice. We don't do that. And we, we find all kinds of interesting ways that we think we're fighting. Mm-hmm. But we're really not. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, know? but what's a hashtag going to do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? It, it gets your it gets your opinion out. <laughs> right. Right. It gets your opinion out. And, but if and you really care about justice, you got to put your money where your mouth is. You got to take what, some risks. And that's what this book's about, folks. I think if you really read through it, you're going to see these stories of these women. You'll be inspired by what they do, by the way that they manage their lives and they take risks and they, and they, and they deal with what's in front of them and doing, making the best of their circumstances, whatever season they are in. Um, So I'm so excited about getting this book out there and tell us a little bit more about where people can get the book and, and how do you hope others will use it? I'm just hoping that others will read it and they will understand 
their purpose where God has placed them, that they don't have to be like anybody. I know we talk a lot about comparison in the Christian church, but we don't necessarily talk about how we stop comparing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We always quote the scriptures. Oh, you're the apple of God's eye. And he thinks about you more than, and and those are great. Those are great scriptures. Mm -hmm. And there are things that we should know, but please tell me how I, I get there. It's a whole lot different to read it and to know it in your head, but how do I know it in my heart? And that's when God's going to begin to change your perspective. Once we realize that we're a part of the body of Christ and that we may be a finger, we may be a shoulder, we may be an elbow, we're a different part. Then we get on board and we say, oh, okay, I can do this. And that's just really what I'm hoping, that they read it and they feel more empowered to be who they are supposed to be, not what the church or the world says that they should be. Well, folks, she also um, is a podcast host for her podcast called Unique on Purpose. Believe it or not, it's kind of relates, <laughs> kind doesn't of, it? Yes. <laughs> kind of does. Yes. And that is because she has a passion just to encourage women to realize how unique, not just women, men too, how unique we all are mm-hmm. and that it's okay in whatever situation God has us to get out there and just fight this war because we have an enemy who doesn't want us, but... I always remember that verse, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Friends, I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I guess I get discouraged. I understand that this real war exists, but I'm also mourning for things that are happening in the world right now, especially to women. I know the enemy hates us, and some of the time I'm ready to fight. Other times I just get weary. Each day I hold on to the fruits of the Spirit and put on that armor of God to give me the energy to keep fighting, especially now. So I say, if you're tired, go ahead, take a nap, and then let's get out there again. Galatians 6.9 reminds us, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So hang in there, warriors. Your season is coming. Until next time, take notes. Oh